was the truth of the Word of God. Uh, you no doubt are very familiar with the five solas of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Sola Christos, and Sola Deo Gloria. If you would picture a, a temple, the foundation of this temple is Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone is our authority. And on this foundation are three massive pillars. And these three massive pillars stand together. And they are a minimalist statement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solas Christos. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what the Reformation was, was a recovery of the gospel. How sinful man can be, can be made right with holy God. And those three solas established the gospel that had been lost for virtually a thousand years because of the corruption and the darkness of the Roman Catholic Church. And when those three, founded, those three pillars rest upon this foundation, there is a, a, a pinnacle. There, there is a roof over the hole that, that points upward to God. Solideo Gloria. For the glory of God alone. But if there is a crack in the foundation, the whole edifice of truth comes tumbling down. And so, the firm foundation for the entire Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone. The Roman Catholic Church acknowledged the authority of the Bible. It's just that they said the authority, who speaks for God, rests in the Bible and. The Bible and church tradition. The Bible and ecclesiastical councils. The Bible and papal authority. The Bible and, and, and. And they just kept stacking uh, other needs to the Bible. But the reformers said, no, there is no and. They place an alone after the Bible. It's not the Bible and, it's the Bible alone. And there, in a nutshell, is the issue of the Reformation. It was the difference between alone and and. The difference between sola and et. Therein is the difference between the Reformers and Rome. And in reality, Rome claimed that the Pope was over the Bible. That church tradition was over the Bible. That ecclesiastical councils were over the Bible. And so the Bible had become buried under a debris of all of these other aspects of the Roman Catholic Church. And the people lived in total, complete ignorance. In fact, the only Bible that there was for a thousand years was a Latin version of the Bible, known as the Vulgate. The problem is, none of the people do Latin. They go to church and hear a worship service in Latin. They didn't even know Latin. They just sat there in, in ignorance. The yeah. only ones who knew Latin were those who had gone to 
university, had gone to, were educated, came from well-to-do families, and had been taught some Latin. But no one even possessed a copy of a Latin Bible. And this gave Rome the, 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 the environment that they needed to keep the people under their thumb. In England, John Wycliffe, in 1382, was the first man to translate the Bible into the English language. However, he did it from the Latin Vulgate. And so you can imagine, it wasn't even from the original Greek or from the original Hebrew. It was at least something, and he, he was the leading scholar of the day. He was the most brilliant mind in all of England. He was the leading professor at Oxford. And he was put out of Oxford because of his commitment to the truth-saving gospel of Jesus Christ. That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But being put out of Oxford, he then used that time to gather other scholars around him and they translated the Bible into English. It was stiff, it was wooden, it was hard to read. It could only be hand-copied. Gutenberg has not yet invented the, the printing press. And Wycliffe sent out preachers known as Lollards on foot who covered the landscape of England preaching the gospel. And they were bitterly opposed, much hated, so much so that in 1401, Parliament passed legislation known as the burning of heretics. And a heretic was one who owned an English Bible. A heretic was one who either translated the Bible into English or possessed an English Bible and you would be burned at the stake to even have a Bible in the English language. In 1408, the constitutions of Oxford were written by the Archbishop of, of England, meaning the one who was over the entirety of the Church of England on behalf of the King. And he forbid any translation of the Bible into English and in that constitution, in the constitutions, he said, no man can read any such book in part or in whole. That's how dark it was in the days leading up to the Reformation. There, there was a thick, dark cloud of ignorance and religious superstition and myths and fables that shrouded the entire nation of England with just a few handful who even knew the Lord. It was into such a setting that God raised a man. God made the man for the moment and made the moment for the man. He became the father of the English Reformation became the father of the modern English language, and he became the father of the English Bible. His name was William Tyndale. J.H. Merrill Dubonnet, the noted Reformed historian, wrote of Tyndale that he was the mighty mainspring of the English Reformation. He, he was the launching pad for the English Reformation. Brian Edwards has said that Tyndale was the heart of the Reformation in England. In fact, he said, no, he was 
the Reformation in England. And John Fox, who wrote Fox's book of martyrs, went so far as to call Tyndale the apostle of England in most glorious terms. So to understand the Reformation in England and to understand its relationship to the Bible is to understand William Tyndale. William Tyndale was born in 1494. Just to give you a reference point, Luther posted his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door in 1517. The Diet of Worms was 1521. Calvin went to Geneva in 1536. Um, Knox went to, to Scotland in 1559. So, Tyndale is born in 1494 in Gloucestershire, which is in the west part of England, near the Wales border. He was born into a family that had some means. They were landowners. They were successful enough to send their son to Oxford, which was the premier university in all of England, easily, and perhaps even in the known world. He entered Oxford at age 12, which was not uncommon in that day. He entered Magdalen Hall and would be in Oxford for the next 10 years. He received his, master, his Bachelor of Arts, 1512, his Master of Arts, 1515, and when he graduated, he made this observation that for all those 10 years, the scripture was intentionally withheld from the students so that the students could be indoctrinated and brainwashed with other ideologies. And only after they had captured the minds of the students were they introduced to scripture. And even at that, it was not a true teaching of scripture. So Tyndale is unconverted. He has an extraordinary education. And by the way, the, all the reformers, all the reformers were educated at the very highest level. They were brilliant men who had been taught how to think and how to read and how to write and how to, how to speak. They, they graduated from Oxford and Cambridge and the University of Paris and St. Andrews and towering, leading universities. The university system was virtually invented in the providence of God just to train the reformers. That they would be unleashed on the world knowing how to read a Bible and study a Bible and preach a Bible and to write about a Bible. So he graduates with hardly any knowledge of the Bible. Lost, perishing, he continues to stay there for some period of time and goes to Cambridge, which was the intellectual rival of Oxford in 1519. That's the very year Martin Luther is converted. And there in Oxford, there in Cambridge, he makes the company of some other students who were very excited to study the Bible and specifically to read together the writings of Martin Luther who is just now being converted. And so they formed a little small group Bible study. They met at a place called the White Horse Inn. And it became known as Little Germany because they just studied Luther. They studied Luther. They studied Luther. And by the way, just a footnote, the Reformation was a college movement. 
It, it began on college and university campuses with, with young people who know how to think, who know how to read, who know how to process information, and who are intellectually honest enough to, to study and to look into issues. They're, they're not closed-minded as people become as they grow older. And so out of this little small group Bible study, Wycliffe is converted as they study justification by faith alone. And this Bible study produced nine martyrs out of one small group Bible study, two Bible translators, seven bishops, and two archbishops who would be over the entire church of England. It was very fertile soil that God was cultivating in that one little small Bible study. William Tyndale was so impacted that he realized, I've got to study the Bible. So he withdraws from Cambridge to devote himself to the study of the Bible. He goes back to Gloucestershire where he was born and where he grew up and worked on a very vast estate of a man named Sir John Walsh. And there he was his personal secretary. Was He tutored the children, was a chaplain for the family in the area. He began to preach. And as he preached, he began to realize and recognize the utter spiritual ignorance of all of you. That no one knows anything about the gospel. That people are just living spiritually blind in a world of darkness. In one particular night, a priest came to eat at the uh, estate of Sir John Walsh, and Tyndale was there at the dining room table, and they got into a debate about the Bible. And the priest said, we would be better off without God's law if we had only the Pope's law. And Tyndale said at that moment, he became a man on a mission. He purposed that a plowboy in the field will know more of the Word of God than the Pope in Rome when he's finished. His goal was to bring the English-speaking world a Bible. So he traveled to London because he had to have permission. He had to have permission from the Bishop of London who would report to the Archbishop, who would report to the King. There, there are layers of bureaucracy. He has to have permission to translate the Bible into the English language, and he is denied. Because Luther has just translated the Bible into German, and it has produced the Peasants' Revolt, and, and all of Germany is turned upside down in consternation. And so, in England, they don't want to have a, an uprising like they see in Europe, so they deny Tyndale this permission. Well, Tyndale, today, the average Christian would say, well, I guess it's just not God's will that I do it. <laughs> it's a closed door. That's how God leads us. It's a closed <laughs> door. Now, Tyndale's going to knock the door down. <laughs> So Tyndale preaches in London. There's a businessman named Henry Monmouth. Here he meets. And he hears Tyndale preach. And he 
and he was a very successful merchant. Nintendo shares his vision to produce an English Bible. And Monmouth says, I'll support you. I'll support you financially. And there's probably a few other businessmen who have been reading Luther. We'll underwrite you if you'll do the work. Tyndale must leave England because every verse that Tyndale will translate is a crime against the crown of England. He will, be, he will become an outlaw with a death sentence on his head. But he understands he must leave England to do this work. So at age 30, William Tyndale leaves England and goes to the European continent never to return. Never to marry. To devote himself to this with unfailing devotion to produce an English Bible. So in 1524 he left England and went to Hamburg, Germany from Hamburg, Germany, he travels to Wittenberg, where Luther is, so that he can, can connect with Luther and also so he can begin to translate the Bible in an academic environment. And also, he must begin to learn Hebrew. There is not one Hebrew teacher in the entire nation of England at this time. It's in essence a dead language unless you happen to be in a Jewish community. And so Tyndale begins the process of learning Hebrew, which is not easy. Greek has about 2,000 vocabulary words. Hebrew has 10,000 vocabulary words. And Tyndale was gifted by God with languages. He was perfectly proficient in eight languages. And if you heard him speak in any one of these eight languages... And that was your mother tongue. He spoke it so perfectly, you would assume that he grew up next door to you. So Tyndale, after being there in Wittenberg for a very short time, in 1525, he goes to Cologne, Germany, which is the largest city in Germany. Why does he go there? For it has the largest cathedral also. Roman Catholic Cathedral because it would be the easiest for him to blend in. In a small town, he would stand out. In a large metropolis that is hustling and bustling with all kinds of people, it will be easy for him to remain anonymous. Even the portraits that we have, we have two main portraits that were painted of William Tyndale. They were all painted posthumously after he died because he could not let his face be known to anyone. And so he would stay in the back room of British merchants who would be sympathetic to his cause and hide in a back room, virtually a closet, and do his work. In 1525, he's ready and he's finished translating the New Testament from Greek. First time anyone in the history of the world has done this. He finds a printer who will print it. It will cost the printer his life if the printer is discovered. And what is taking place becomes known. 
and there's a raid on the print shop. And Tyndale has been tipped right before it happens. And he runs into the room and he gathers all of his work and escapes in the middle of the night before the raid comes. He gets on a ship, goes down the, the Rhine River. Where will he go? He goes to Ferns, Germany. For just five years earlier, Martin Luther stood at the Diet of Ferns and said, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, my conscience is bound to the Word of God. And there were those in Ferns who were sympathetic to Luther and the Reformation. So he comes to Ferns, Germany, and there he prints the first English Bible, a New Testament translated from the original language. It's the first time ever. There are certain things that have to fall into place for this to happen. Wherever this is going to be printed, number one, it has to be on a major river. Because there's no trains, there's no airplanes, there's no cars. To get these Bibles to England and to Scotland, there's going to have to be a river that this can be put onto boats. But the river must flow into the open sea. And from there, it can take an international trade route and go to England. But more than that, it's going to have to be near a forest with enough trees to produce enough paper to print these Bibles. But also, he must find a printer who will be willing to risk his life to print it. And all of this fell into place for William Tyndale. He hid about 2,000 Bibles into bales of, of cotton that were put on the ships out in the open sea, goes to England and to Scotland, and there, there are Protestant-friendly merchants ready to receive these Bibles and they begin to sell them and distribute them. And for the first time ever now, a farmer, a blacksmith, a college student can pick up a Bible and read for themselves what is the truth. Amen. They are no longer dependent upon the lies of Rome. Game on. <laughs> the match has been struck. The fuse has been lit. The Reformation is beginning to spread like wildfire. So Tyndale starts it. He then, in 1528, writes a theological work known as the Parable of the Wicked Mammon, which is a defense of justification by faith alone. He writes a book, The Obedience of the Christian Man, which calls for submission to the king. In 1528, there begins to be a manhunt for Tyndale. The word has gotten back because all these Bibles are circulating now. What's taking place? So Henry VIII, the king who had all those wives, sends out three agents. Your task is to find Tyndale and either have him killed or have him brought back. They come back empty-handed. They can't find him because he's hiding in back rooms. A man named John West is sent out on a mission to find Tyndale, who is a fugitive of the King of England. 
can't find him. But this doesn't slow Tyndale down at all. 1529, the next year, he begins to interpret now the Old Testament. He's done the New Testament. He now is pressing on to the Old Testament and to translate it out of the Hebrew language. He's in Antwerp, and he has finished the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's taken over a year to do this. He boards the ship so that he may go down the Elbe, out the open sea, and then down the Elbe River to find a printer to print the first five books in the Old Testament. He, he, he's got to be constantly on the move so that his whereabouts cannot be discovered. And as he's on this ship on the open sea, a storm blows in, and the ship that he is on suffers a wreck, a shipwreck. And all of his books and all of his works go down to the bottom of the ocean. Mm. But again, Tyndale never translates a closed door as this must not be God's will. <laughs> so Tyndale uh, goes to Hamburg, Germany, and retranslates Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It takes him almost a complete year. And as he does so, he's having to coin words that have never been used before. Jehovah. Atonement. Scapegoat. Ark. With every line that Tyndale translates, he is standardizing the modern English language. How words will be spelled, and by their placement, what they mean. At the end of each of those five books, he includes a glossary, which is like a, a thin dictionary. It becomes the first dictionary in the history of the English language. There will not be a formal dictionary, listen to this, until 1703, mm. about another 170 years. Tyndale is so far out ahead of his time that, that he is really becoming the, the father of the English language. His own last name was spelled multiple different ways. You can imagine with just other words, the challenge of just even reading. And so Tyndale is, is standardizing the, the English language. And while he's there, back in England... Sir Thomas More, who is the king's Lord Chancellor, is commissioned to unleash an attack upon Tyndale, and he writes a massive, massive tome called A Dialogue Concerning Heretics. Well, the whole thing is directed to Tyndale, in which, in print, he calls Tyndale uh, a hellhound hell in the devil's kennel. He calls him a new Judas. He calls Tyndale worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. He calls Tyndale an idolater. He calls him a devil worshiper. And he's in the, he's in the devil's crosshair, Tyndale is. But Tyndale doesn't, doesn't faze him. He knows how to play her. And in 1530, he responds to all this. And he writes the practice of prelates 
which is a documentation of the corrupt union of Rome and England, mm. the Pope and the King. In 1531, there's another attempt to find uh, Tyndale and bring him back to England. And I wish I had time to go into all of the details of all this. I'm just skimming the highlights for you. But a man named Stephen Bond in 1531 is sent to Europe to find Tyndale. He goes to the major cities. He does a lot of investigation. He finds out where Tyndale actually is. And he makes an offer to Tyndale. He says, if you will come home to England, you will be given a salary for the rest of your life. You will be given safe passage. And Tyndale says, I agree. If you appoint someone else to finish the translation of the Old Testament. No deal. And Vaughn reports back to England, I always find him singing the same note. I mean, Tyndale is like a violin player, and there's only one string on the violin. <laughs> he is a man on a mission. This one thing I do, he will produce an English Bible if it kills him, which it eventually will. At this time, he continues to translate the Old Testament from Joshua, the second chronicles. Then he skips over the rest of the Old Testament, and of all places, he goes to Jonah. And he translates Jonah because he wants every preacher in England to stand in a pulpit and to preach, 40 days and London will be destroyed. 40 days and Cambridge will be destroyed. 40 days and Liverpool will be destroyed. He wanted the message of Jonah that was preached to Nineveh to be preached to England. In 1534, he edits his New Testament. He makes some 4,000 edits. He's an obsessive perfectionist. And he is, he, he is sharpening the focus of words and, and phrases and and how it's stated in the order of the words in the sentence so it can be as perfect from one language to the next as, as it can be. Some estimated as many as 5,000 edits in just the New Testament alone. The next year, in 1535, he produces a third edition of the New Testament with a few more tweaks. And it is in this producing of this New Testament that... He is literally coining these phrases the way they are translated that would become standard for us in the use of the English language. And Tyndale translates, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the twinkling of an eye, in a, a moment in time, let there be light. The powers that be, my brother's keeper, a law unto themselves, filthy lucre, it came to pass. He gave up the ghost, the sign of the times, in whom we live and move and have our being. 
These expressions in the scripture that we just take for granted, Tyndale is having to think, how can I restate this where it's accurate to the Greek language, yet an English ear understands what is being said. In 1535, back in England, a very wealthy man gives to his son, Henry Phillips, an enormous amount of money to take to London to his bank and to his financier. The young son is a very foolish son. And along the way, begins to gamble. And then double down. And then double down again. And loses his father's entire estate. Phillips is despondent. And the church in England the church in London finds out about this. And they bring Phillips in. And they cut a deal. Out of the church's treasury, we will repay the entirety of your father's lost estate. If you'll go to Europe, if you'll find Tyndale, if you'll have him arrested, you'll have him imprisoned and if you'll have him put to death we will transfer all the money that you lost to your father's account it was a deal with the devil and so Phillips had no choice but to accept this bargain and so he goes to Europe and through different connections with different British merchants, finds his way to the house where Tyndale is living in the back room. The other merchants are there, and Phillips works his way and worms his way into that inner circle to befriend Tyndale. The merchants said to Tyndale, you feel uneasy about this. You don't really know anything about this young man. And Tyndale was so preoccupied with his work of translating the rest of the Old Testament, he just let it go in one ear and out the other until a very dark day. Philip says to Tyndale, let's go for a walk. So they begin to walk down back alleys. And Philip says to Tyndale, you go first. And Tyndale goes first through a very narrow passage. And come, Phillips comes in behind him and points. And officers are on the other side of the wall. And they come and they apprehend Tyndale. He's been at large underground for a decade. 10 years until finally now he is apprehended. He's taken to a castle, the Vilvorde Castle 
six miles north of Brussels in Belgium. It's a massive fortress of a castle, impregnable, surrounded by a moat with drawbridges and large towers. It's inescapable. And there they put Tyndale for 500 days. And as Tyndale sits there, he just continues to work on his Hebrew to sharpen his understanding of the Hebrew language if God should release him. There is a trial. There is a heresy trial. And these are the charges brought against Tyndale. Number one, you preach justification by faith alone. Number two, you say that human traditions do not bind the conscience. Number three, you say that the human will is bound in sin. Four, you say there is no purgatory. Five, you say that Mary and the saints do not pray for us. And six, you say we are not to pray to Mary or to the saints. He was condemned as a heretic. He went through a lengthy ceremony in which priestly garments were put on him and then removed, signifying his excommunication from the priesthood. His hands were scraped with cut glass, signifying that the anointing of the Holy Spirit is now removed from him. And on October the 6th, he's led to a stake. And there before he meets his execution, he prays this prayer, Lord, open the eyes of the king. Tyndale was then hung by the neck, strangled to death. His body was then burned at the stake. Gunpowder was put around his torso. And his body was blown up into so many pieces, there was nothing left to bury all to put an English Bible into your hand and my hand. Unknown to Tyndale at that time, the previous year, 1535, one of his assistants, Miles Coverdale, who had been a part of the White Horse Inn, who had reconnected with Tyndale while in Europe, took the remains of Tyndale's work and he finished the translation of the Old Testament in a very poor way. He didn't know Hebrew. So he had to translate out of Luther's German Bible and out of a Swiss German Bible in Zurich and out of the Latin Vulgate and produced really a rather corrupted translation of the rest of the Old Testament. It's known as the Coverdale Bible. But it is now the first complete English Bible of its kind. In 1537, the Matthews Bible is produced by another assistant of Tyndale, the one who actually, after he was arrested, went back into the room and gathered up all of Tyndale's work and escaped in the middle of the night before the officials could come and confiscate all of Tyndale's translations. And he was much, uh, much more... Um, educated than Coverdale 
and he actually edits and corrects the Coverdale Bible and produces the Matthews Bible under the pseudonym of an of a imagined name so that he can continue the work. That's 1537. 1539, the Great Bible is produced, which is Tyndale's, uh, which is Coverdale's translation, and it is chained by the order of the king to every pulpit in England. <laughs> Great because of its size. It was a massive pulpit Bible. God is answering Tyndale's prayer. Lord, open the eyes of the king. And Henry VIII, through his counselors and advisors, reverses his decisions and now orders that an English Bible be put into every pulpit in England. In 1560, the Geneva Bible is produced in Geneva, Switzerland. John Knox was a part of that translation team, and it would become the English Bible that was used for the next hundred years, the Bible that Shakespeare used, the Bible that the pilgrims carried in 1620 to the colonies, and then 1611, the King James Version of the Bible is produced. But what you need to know, 47 scholars met from 1608 to 1611 to produce the King James Version of the Bible. 47 men working those three years, and when they finished, some 85% of the work was exactly the way Tyndale did it by himself, in back rooms with candles. What a gift Tyndale gave to us. Every subsequent English translation after Tyndale stands on the shoulders of Tyndale. And as each translation would seek to be more accurate and with new archaeological discoveries and new discoveries of manuscripts, etc., nevertheless, William Tyndale, he was the man. <laughs> He's the true hero. I've been asked, who my favorite? Reformer is. I've written books on Luther, Calvin, Knox. For me, I'll take Tyndale. Because he made a sacrifice that Luther and Calvin and Knox never made. He gave his life at the stake. And he gave a gift that Calvin and Knox never gave. He gave the gift of a Bible in the language of his fellow countrymen. So what do we learn from Tyndale for your life? Let me end with this. Number one, we must be willing to stand alone. Tyndale's still alone. Here's what's amazing to me about Tyndale. No church sent him out. No denomination sent him out. No one laid hands on Tyndale and he was formally sent out and was backed by a school, an institution, a denomination, the church. He just went and did it. He just went and did it. He didn't need permission to do God's will. It was a one-man SWAT team, is what he was. 
And you know what? He was willing to stand alone. There are going to be times you're going to have to stand alone. You need to be reminded the majority is never right. The majority is always wrong. It is few who are on the narrow path. The many are on the broad path. You need to remember what Knox said, that God plus one makes a majority. If God is for you, who can be against you? Second thing is, we must be willing to pay a price to stand alone. To stand alone is not easy. When I used to play sports, football coach would tell us, no pain, no gain. you got to pay the price to taste victory. And if we are to follow the will of God, as Tyndale followed the will of God, it will come at a heavy price. And that price is escalating by the day as you and I are living in a country just like England once was that is now presently shrouded in spiritual darkness. Mm -hmm. And the third thing, the final thing, just to remind you, that standing alone and doing God's will, as Tyndale did, leads to blessings for other people. He was willing to lay down his life and to give himself so that a nation that spoke his language would have a Bible in their hand. It speaks of the sacrifice mothers must make for their children, fathers must make for their family. It speaks of the sacrifice that pastors must make and elders must make in order that blessing will come to others. So as you consider the English Reformation, it was driven by a Bible. And the man who produced that Bible was none other than William Tyndale. He is a hero of heroes. He, he is the tip of the spear for the English Reformation. He, 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 is, he is the pivot point for the English-speaking world. Because he provided a Bible in your language. As you go out into the museum, you've got to go find Tyndale. You've got to go find that Tyndale Bible. 1526, 1534, 1535. Those are the three editions of the New Testament. And then the Old Testament is sprinkled.